Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. If you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 9, the Gospel of John chapter 9. If you're newer visiting with us, we have been journeying through the New Testament letter of Romans, and a few weeks ago we took a break after Romans chapter 6. Our plan is to pick back up in Romans at the beginning of the new year in January, start back in Romans chapter 7. For the remainder of this year, there's going to be some standalone messages. A couple of weeks we're going to focus on the coming of Christ as we prepare for Advent season. Next, in fact, let me just give you a heads up. The next two weeks, uh, Jennifer and I are, are going to be out of town. This Saturday night after Thanksgiving, we're going to China for two weeks where we'll be visiting our oldest son, where he has been working for this past year. We're going to Beijing. The high is 38. The low is in the low 20s. We don't own good coats because we live in Georgia. So we're excited about that. <laughs> but Robert will be preaching next Sunday, and then the first Sunday of December, Reuben, one of our elders, Reuben Moyana, will be preaching, and then I'll be back, and we'll, we'll get into a few Advent-related messages, and then we'll, we'll pick back up in Romans chapter 7. So pray for us as we travel to China. Really looking forward to seeing our oldest boy. We miss him. This morning... We're going to zero in on John 9. Why John 9? Well, as we've been for this past year journeying through Romans, which is an intensely doctrinal letter. In fact, I think it's the most doctrinal letter in the whole Bible. I think it's a good balance for us to look at the truth of the gospel doctrine that we see in Romans embodied, personified, pictured, displayed in the life of Jesus. And the good news of the gospel, the freeness of the gospel, the glory of the gospel, the power of the gospel that we've been baking in in Romans, we see, we see so clearly pictured in John chapter 9. So I think it's a good, a good balance for us to, to read the propositional truths of Paul with the beautiful encounters with Jesus that we see. And so we're going to look at Roman, or John chapter 9. Let me, let me pray and ask us to, ask the Lord to help us learn from this chapter. My plan is to just work all the way through it, give you a few concluding thoughts, and then, then we'll be done. Let me pray. Father, as we, as we open up your book, we pray for your grace to us. We thank you for the word of God. We, we want to humble ourselves underneath it. It is our authority. It's breathed out by you. It's written by you. It's your word to us. It's without error. It's... it's completely authoritative in our lives. The world mocks it, but we find life in it. As we look at this story in John chapter 9, this historical account of Jesus healing a man that was born blind, I pray that you would teach us from your word that those that see spiritually in this room would, would see afresh the beauty of the gospel, and the goodness of Christ. And those that are spiritually blind in this room, by your kindness, Lord, would you blow like a fresh and mighty wind? Would you blow sight and vision 
and faith and salvation into their lives this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd do this all for the glory of your name and for the encouragement and edification of your people and for the salvation of all those that you have set your affection on in eternity past who today you are calling to faith in you. I pray that you would do all this for your purposes and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read in John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he, speaking of Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Can you imagine asking that question right in front of the guy like he's a science experiment? It just, just feels a little inhumane. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. And that I think Jesus is referring to his earthly ministry and the night being his crucifixion. He's saying, let's do all we can now. But I think there's a parallel to that too, in our lives. We, we should do what we can while we are alive because there's coming a day when we won't be able to serve God. We'll be with him forever. The mission will be over. We must work the works of him, verse 4, who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And this phrase, the light of the world, just repeats itself over and over and over again in John's gospel. In fact, John begins his gospel in John chapter 1, saying that Jesus is the light of the world. It's come into the world, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, having said these things, listen to this. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Okay, let's pause there for a moment and just think about a few things. First is, just think about the, these disciples and their question of Jesus. They, they want to know what's going on in this man's life. They're, they're learning theologically and and they're still kind of young and immature and not kind of having good graces. And just in front of this blind guy, who apparently has been born blind, has been blind for his entire life, the disciples, in a sort of inhumane way, are asking for Jesus to kind of connect the dots for them. And the mistake that the disciples are making here is they're drawing a direct line between this man's blindness and their presupposition that it is directly connected to something that he has done. Now, now that, that should cause us to stop for a minute and think about it. In, in one sense, all, all sin and suffering is in, in a way a consequence of the fall. And so, so it is a consequence of sin. That's in a universal corporate sense. We're all fallen. We are all dealing with things. We're all broken. We're all marching towards the expiration of these earthly tents. But the mistake that the disciples are making is that they're taking this sort of universal sense that all of mankind has fallen and that everything that's out of joint in this world is, in one sense, a result of sin and human fallenness. They're, they're applying it individually. And they're saying that there must be something that this man has done that has caused this blindness. Well, there's a couple things going on there. That's a wrong 
direct line to draw. Secondly, isn't that just sort of high, just holier, as if to sort of look at somebody else like they've got problems and you're just, there's no, there's no direct lines in your own life. There's just kind of embedded spiritual arrogance in there that I think we're all sort of prone to when we look at other people and we judge them very harshly and we sort of give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Don't we do that? Amen. Seven of us. All right. Praise God. And, and what does Jesus say here? He says, no, no. Actually, life does not work like that. Life is not governed by these direct lines between cause and effect, but life is governed by the sovereign, often mysterious, and hidden purposes of God. Friends, we'll dwell on this, Lord willing, here in just a moment. But that, that should encourage us in unstable times. And, and there are a thousand situations just in this room that are complicated and confusing and makes us wonder what God is up to. But this, this little paragraph here should encourage and embolden us that God has purposes in everything. One of my favorite songs or poems in the history of the church was written by a man named William Cooper. It's spelled William Cowper, and he wrote this poem and song, which is called God Works in a Mysterious Way in the 1700s. He was a friend of John Newton, the hymn writer of Amazing Grace. William Cooper himself actually suffered from mental illness and lived with John Newton for years. And through his brokenness, actually the Lord enabled him to write some incredible songs and hymns which have become staples, theological staples of the church. And he wrote this song that we now have a sort of, sort of a trite phrase in our culture that God works in mysterious ways. Well, that's just a sort of cultural phrase that comes from this really incredible song. In fact, not now, don't Google it now, but later on, I know how y'all are. Somebody's already done it. William Cooper, you're, you're just, you're reading it right now. Okay. <laughs> Look up William Cooper's God Works in Mysterious Ways. It's spelled Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R. Just listen to this one line. Trust not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And we're going to see as we work through this story that it's actually God's kindness to this man in a way that he was born blind. It was a frowning providence to be born as a blind man in first century Palestinian world. How difficult that would be. But in God's kindness, he actually uses this man's humble estate to be part of the thing that brings him to a place where God moves on him and restores his sight. Not just physically, that's only a tiny fraction of it, but spiritually. The frowning providence of the thing that makes life hard is the very thing that God uses to bring about his eternal purposes in the life of this man. Friends, that should give us all right now. You're struggling and you're jealous of the person who's next to you who seems like it, they all have it together. First of all, they don't. Second of all, rejoice in the utter sovereignty of God. It's been a while since we've had a Spurgeon quote. This one's just off the top of my head. Uncle Chuck said, I've learned to kiss the waves that dash me against the rock of ages. Oh, friends, God is sovereign. There is not a direct line between sin and suffering all the time in this world. And God has purposes. God's sovereign purpose governed the universe. 
Now, now just before we pick back up and read in verse 8, why the mud and the pool? Why? (laughs) Because, I mean, it's not like Jesus needed a little juice, right? It's not like he needed mud cakes and a certain pool to perform the healing because we see we just the bible the, the 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 gospels are full of instances where jesus just speaks a word and the demons obey him and sickness goes it, it that's that's not it what, so what's going on with with jesus spitting on some mud now you gotta spit a lot to make some mud and then you're you're packing it on our man's face that's an awkward few minutes. <laughs> What's going on there? This has perplexed commentators through the centuries. I didn't really read any real, real good explanation of it. Some point to Genesis 2, where it says that God formed man from the dust of the ground, and, and they're saying that it's, it's Jesus in a, in a subtle way, really proclaiming that he is the creator, of course, which, he, which we know he is from Colossians chapter 1. And so Jesus is identifying himself as, as God by, by recreating the sight of this man, in a sense, by using the dust of the ground, maybe. John Calvin, the great reformer in the 1500s. <laughs> I love this. I don't know that I necessarily agree with my boy Johnny, but this is really good. He thought that Jesus was actually doing this just to make it more difficult for this guy to even get to the pool. It's like, we're just going to, in case anybody's doubting that he's blind, we're going to put mud cake blinders on his face. <laughs> and, and, and Calvin actually alluded to, he says, this is like Elijah in Mount Carmel in Kings, where he's before the 450 prophets of Baal, and he's mocking them, and he douses the wooden altar with water before the Lord catches it on fire. So he's pouring water on it to make the fire of God even more miraculous. And Calvin says that's what Jesus is doing here. He's making the blind man even more blind, so that when he makes him unblind, it will be even more miraculous. Well, maybe, John, maybe. Who am I to disagree with John Calvin? But, but maybe, maybe this is just in, her, in here to show us that, that sometimes it doesn't work according to our patterns. It, nobody's alike. One man, Jesus, looks at him and he says, be gone, demons. They jump into a herd of pigs. They run off a cliff. The guy's free. Another guy, Jesus, spits in mud packs it on his face, sends him to a pool to dip in. It's different. God will not be confined in boxes and formulas and patterns. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115, verse 3, and he does whatever he pleases. So we can't look at one another and generalize it and say, well, this is the way it happened for me. No, it happens differently for every person. And I just think that Jesus maybe is just being creative here. He's just, being, he's just drawing obedience out of this guy. He's just working with an individual. He's spitting in mud. He's putting it on his face. How humbling is that? As if being blind all of your life and a beggar on the side of the road isn't tough enough. Now you've got to walk around with mud cakes on your face to some pool? Our God is in the heavens. And he does whatever he pleases. He is not bound by our formulas and patterns and old wineskins. He moves upon each soul uniquely and differently. Friends, take heart in that. Take heart in that. 
And when you see God acting differently on somebody else's life, friend, don't try and fit it in. Don't try and judge it to your paradigm. Rejoice and go with the Spirit of God's work in somebody's life. Ah, oh, the Lord uses means. Why, why the pool too? Just a little thing here. We could get into this, but this, it says it in the text. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. I mean, come on. He doesn't work on us so that it would dead end on us. The, the, the ultimate goal in the life of this blind man is to be sent. To be sent. The goal of this church, the goal of our lives is to be sent. Why are we planning a church? To be sent. We want to be people that go. We receive and go. We get and we give. It's not about us. It's about the glory of Christ amongst all peoples. He wants us to be sent. Verse 8. I took way too long in the first seven verses. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. <laughs> he kept saying, I am the man. Like, hey, it's me. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, verse 11, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. So we see a kind of progression in the life of this man. He first the first interrogation, I, I don't know, there's this guy named Jesus. The second interrogation, it's, it's like it's developing a little bit, his understanding. He, he's, he's some type of prophet. But, but before we move on, just what's noteworthy here, just to take note of this, is, is there something going on here that it really works its way out in the life of Jesus in all of the Gospels, and it's Jesus intentionally orchestrating conflict with the religious leaders of his day by intentionally healing and doing great works and miracles on the Sabbath. So according to Old Testament tradition, on top of the law, healing to do these type of things on the Sabbath would have been punishable by death in some instances. And Jesus is going out of his way. It's not like Jesus didn't know, oh man, I just, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. Man, I wouldn't look at my calendar. Jesus is intentionally healing on the Sabbath. And we could spend a lot of time thinking about that. That's not the main point of what I want us to look at in John chapter 9. But I think what's going on is a couple of things. Jesus, by healing on the Sabbath, is demonstrating to the religious leader of his, of his day and really the onlooking world that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to serve to point to him, not him to subordinate himself to the Sabbath. Just a couple chapters earlier in John chapter 5. Listen to what it says in John chapter 5, 
After Jesus has healed this, this man at, at a, another pool, and in John chapter 5, verse, starting in verse 16, it says, and this, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So this has already been a problem, even before, a couple chapters before in John. But Jesus answered them in verse 17 of John 5, My father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but, and this is how they interpreted what Jesus said in verse 17, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so what he's saying is, is, I'm not subordinate to the law. I wrote the law, and the law is actually pointing to me. And God is always working, and I'm working. And so I'm God, is what Jesus is saying. And there's, there's much for us to mine out of that. But, but friends, I think we, we, we get out of it a, a similar point that we saw in the mud and the pool. Je- Jesus will not be confined to our limited understanding of what we think and how we think he should work. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is there to point to Jesus. He is our ultimate rest. Let's keep going. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents. Now this is, this is, this is striking. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, verse 20, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22 tells us why they said that. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So you see, his parents are already piecing together that what Jesus is doing is is in some way pointing to his divinity. So it says they know that there's some connection here. So they're saying that, you know, to to say that it's Jesus that has healed him is, is a kind of divine act. And so that's maybe confessing Jesus as Lord. So in verse 23, therefore his parents said again, he's of age, ask him. Parents of the Year Award. <laughs> so we just did a parent and child dedication this morning. Uh, I, I'm, moms and dads, I'm not advocating that this is a good example of parenting here. Throw your kid under the bus for the sake of your own hide. That's not to be commended. What are we to make of this? I think this is a clear example of how the fear of man and that's, that's clearly what his parents are succumbing to here. The fear of man will shrink and destroy a person's life. The fear of man. Being more fearful of what man can do to you than what God and who God is will cause a person's heart to wither on the vine and cause them to be so turned in on themselves that they would even forsake their own child. A couple chapters later in, in John chapter 12, listen to what, what it says about the fear of man. John chapter 12, verse 42. It's a kind of commentary. 
John makes this, this little statement here in John 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, speaking of Jesus. But listen to this. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Listen to verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's a sentence. Now, it's more subtle in our lives, isn't it? Because we don't have a situation where, you know, the religious leaders of the government of our day, at least at this point, it may happen some point in our lives, is, is causing us to, or forcing us to make a decision between forsaking Jesus and our confession of who he truly is, or, you know, be forced with the consequences of being thrown out of the, you know, the, the temple. We don't face such a stark choice, but it's more subtle, isn't it? It's more subtle in our day and, and maybe even more dangerous. We, we, we as people are so susceptible to wanting the glory from man. Everybody like me. Social media like me, like me. Does everybody think I'm okay? Am I doing a good job raising my child? Am I, am I doing, everybody, hey everybody, I worked out at CrossFit. Hey everybody, this is me with my pose and my little honor child. Hey everybody, like, does anybody pay attention? Does everybody approve of me? And friends, that will produce in us an instinct that the most important thing about us is what the horizontal world thinks about us rather than God. And it's so subtle that before we know it, over the course of time, we can be a million miles away from fearing God, but we're cool with the world around us and everybody likes us, so we're good. Friends, that is a lie and we are all prone to it. And I pray today that even if you're seeing, even if you're believing, that maybe God would just retune our eyes to see that he is the one whom we should fear and get our rest in and are trusting not the world around us. It comes down to the, the question, is God, is God enough for me? Or is the approval of man what I truly glory in? Verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus because he's doing this on the Sabbath, even though he knew that this guy was blind, and now he's, I mean, they're just, they're kind of suspending reality, so to speak. Verse 25, he answered, this is the man born blind, whether he is a sinner or not, I do, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, here's a line, that though I was blind, now I see. <laughs> man, I don't, I don't know, I don't know a lot of theology, I don't know. I do not have a copy of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I don't have a lot of books. I couldn't open my Bible to Galatians if, if, if my life depended on it. I don't know. But one thing I do know, that I had an encounter with Jesus, and now everything's different. Don't let your youth or your lack of what you perceive to be some sort of knowledge hold you back. If you've had a, an encounter with Jesus and he's changed your life, he wants to send you. One thing I do know 
I was blind, but now I see, verse 26. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, I love it. He starts to get a little chippy. <laughs> he's, he's, he's getting a little ornery. Contrast this with his parents who cowered to the fear of man. Look at our man here, verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Now that's a transformation. Think about the humility of being born blind and how you have been passed over. I mean, just, just the humility. Of that. You, 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 and the effect that that would have on a person's soul and how they see themselves and how that affects just even the way you interact with the, the world around you, being so unsure of yourself. And now, now, Within the course of a day and a miracle, he is getting chippy with the religious leaders. I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you? Now he's taunting them. Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. And they don't understand the Bible, right? We know that from Jesus' words, that Moses is pointing to Jesus. If you're a disciple of Moses, that should lead you to be a disciple of Jesus. We know that God has spoken to Moses. This is still the Pharisee speaking. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. <laughs> Verse 30, the man answered. I mean, he's just full board, just mocking him now. Why, this is an amazing thing. Remember that he woke up this morning blind. Humble. Second-class citizen, mocked, scorned, cast aside, is no good, of no value. Verse 30, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Now he's preaching. Never since the world Began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, because they didn't really have any objection to what he was saying. Truthfully, they just, they just answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So when you don't have an argument against somebody, you just kind of attack their, you know, your perception of their character and get them out of your presence, right? Just an ad hominem, just, just attack them and get out of there. Yeah, we don't want to hear, ah, get out of here. Basically, their defense. Friends, seeing Jesus rightly, as this man did because of Jesus' miraculous work in his life, frees us from the fear of man. It frees us to worship him. It frees us to testify about him. It frees us to follow him, as we'll see in a second. And friends, this should this should embolden and encourage us. It should make us remember that God can change people. Friends, that's the hope of the gospel. This man's life up to this point was, was pitiful, pathetic, no hope. And look at him now in the course of hours. Jesus came upon him and changed him. And you can change too. Not because of anything in you, but because of the sovereign grace of God who has purposes for his people. John Newton said this. He's the guy that was William Cooper's friend, the great. 
hymn writer who was a slave trader and God miraculously changed this wicked man, John Newton, who used to traffic in people. How wicked is that? And this is what John Newton said, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, I, he said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be, but I thank God that by the grace of God, I'm not who I used to be. Friends, that's the hope of the gospel. He can change people. He does change people. In fact, if you're truly a Christian, you must change. Not because you reach down within some reservoir of grit, but because God has promised. Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That, oh gosh, that means that God, when he saves you, has an in-state in mind, and that in-state is your guaranteed progression, transformation into Christ-likeness. If you're struggling with some habitual sin, and Ricky prayed for us at the beginning of our worship about this very thing, if you're struggling with something that's been racking you for years and you can't get out of it, friends, know that when Jesus gives you sight and fills you with his spirit, you can, you must, you shall go free. Yeah. This blind guy's got me chippy now. <laughs> Desperate wife, hold on. God, God can change your husband. He can do it. Hold on, hold on. He can do it. Mom and dad with a wayward son, hold on. He, he can change hearts. That's no guarantee, but where, where else can we go, Lord? Peter says at the end of John 6, you have the words of life. He can do it. He can do it. And he uses the means of his people praying and believing and hoping in him to be part of the way. He uses us as like mud packed with saliva just to be the means of his grace. He can do it. Hold on, dear one. Hold on. Hold on. God can change people. You right now wrecked with habitual sin. He can do it. He can do it. Hold on. Hold on. And give yourself to the gospel and the community of God's people. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who's speaking to you. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. In verse 38, we find out that really the point of the story is not merely that Jesus can heal physical blindness, although he can, praise God. The point of the story is not merely that Jesus heals us from our physical infirmities, although he can, praise God. And by the way, just as an aside, we should pray for that. We should pray for that. We should... 
We should do a better job. We're people that believe in the sovereign God who can do whatever he pleases and and he uses the means of his people praying. James 5 says that if any of you are sick, let him call for the leaders of the church and let him be anointed with oil. Let him pray and let let the, the working of these prayers of faith bring about healing in a person's life. That's no guarantee, but it is to say that we should pray and that we should, we should seek the good and health. All these things are important, but they're secondary, friends, and God is sovereign, and at times he doesn't work this way in each of our individual's lives, but the point of this story is a greater, more eternal point that this man who was spiritually blind now sees. This man who wasn't just physically blind, but spiritually blind, now sees Jesus rightly and is turned into a worshiper and missionary for Jesus. That's the point of the story. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may see, and those who see may become blind. And by that I think he's saying those who think that they see, the spiritually arrogant, are actually left in their blindness. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard These things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. It's not to say that a blind person or somebody that doesn't know Jesus or isn't aware of him somehow is free from inherited sin. He's just saying there's there's a kind of special guilt that the Pharisees have because they actually knew the law of God but disobeyed him. But now you say we see, now that you say Now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus is judging these religious leaders more strictly there. I think that's what's going on in verse 41. He's saying your spiritual arrogance has really obscured the gospel to you and you're left in your blindness. Three brief reflections and then we're done. The first is that God's purposes, not cause and effect, govern the universe. Friends, remember that. There's no direct line between sin and suffering necessarily in our lives. Sometimes there is. But if, 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 pro- if providence seems to have frowned on you, know that if you're one of God's children, he's not unaware. He's, he is superintending all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name, and we can rest in that. Listen to this. These two questions from the Heidelberg Catechism, this great catechism from the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. Question 27. What do you mean by the providence of God? Answer. Providence is the almighty, ever-present power of God by which he still upholds as though with his own hand heaven and earth and all creatures, even wicked despots, even presidents, even governors, even terrorist organization leaders, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, richness and poverty, indeed all things come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. A follow-on question, question 28, how does this help us? How does it help us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Answer, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well and confident for the future in our faithful God and Father, fully trusting that nothing in creation can separate us from his love for all things created are so entirely in his hand that without his will, they cannot even move. Oh, man. Oh, 
oh, it just makes me want to go Rocky Balboa on some steps in Philadelphia right now. I want to run up those steps to Eye of the Tiger and I want to shadow box. And I want to thank God because, friends, we can all be racked with anxiety. No matter what Washington, D.C. does or no matter what some errant cancer cell does, whatever's happening, friends, eternity's in view, not just these 80 or 90 years. Whatever the ultrasound says, Whatever the blood test reveals, we can pray and God in his kindness may see fit to do some miracle as a kind of foretaste of glory. But even if he doesn't, he's good and he has a plan for his people. And what governs this universe is not random cancer cells or terrorists or presidents, but the sovereign purposes of God. And I can rest in that. I can not only rest in that, I can fight from that. I can live from that truth. Secondly, we must all decide between fearing man or fearing God. Every one of us. That's a daily choice, man. One will take us captive. One will free us. Listen to this quote from Richard Baxter, Puritan pastor. Listen to the title of the sermon. I love it. I did the, the, the title of the sermon. I love it. The sermon title is Directions Against Inordinate Man-Pleasing or That Overvaluing the Favor of Man, Which is the Fruit of Pride and a Great Cause of Hypocrisy or Directions Against Idolizing Man. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Listen to what Pastor Baxter says to us about the fear of man and how foolish it is. Remember how silly a creature man is and that his favor can be no better than himself. The thoughts and words of a mortal worm are matters of no considerable value to us. He's talking about other people, so like look to your right and left and say, you're a worm. <laughs> Remember what a multitude you have to please when you log on to Facebook Remember what a multitude you have to please. And when you have pleased some, how many more will still be unpleased? And how many displeased when you've done your best? Alas, we are insufficient at once to observe all those that observe us and would be pleased by us. You are like the one that hath but 12 pence in his purse and a thousand beggars come about him for it and everyone will be displeased if he have it not all. Oh, friends, isn't that us? Thirdly, I think this is the sum point of this chapter. Jesus takes the blind, the spiritually blind, and makes them seeing worshipers. Friends, that's the glory of the gospel. Notice this man's progression. In verse 11, he just called him some man named Jesus. In verse 11, he called him a prophet. In verse 38, he said, I believe. Jesus is so kind. He doesn't just conk people over the heads. John 6 says, Jesus says that the Father has given me a people and no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. He's so kind to draw us, to be gentle with us, and to bring us to him. And he takes the scales that are on all of our eyes and he causes them to fall off and he turns us into people who behold Jesus and see that the only way that we can be made right with a holy creator God is not 
not by our works of righteousness, not by our morality, not by our cultural distinctives, not by our, our church attendance, but because we realize through seeing who we really are in light of a holy God and that Jesus, the God-man, the perfect one who's become a man, who lived a perfect life, who laid down his life on the cross, who bore the wrath of the Father that should have been ours, absorbed it, extinguished it, removed it, and rose again in victory over death, hell, and the grave. And now because he is the king, gives life. Now we see that. We behold it. We put our hope in him. And that great truth becomes the thing that compels our lives. And he turns people who were racked in sin, were racked in spiritual blindness. He gives them eyes to see. And now the beauty of Jesus becomes overwhelmingly, irresistibly attractive and beautiful to them. And we get chippy in the face of a world that would drag us down. And we say, wait a minute now, I don't know, I don't know everything I should know, but he's Jesus and you guys are knuckleheads. And so I'm going to follow him and I'm going to worship him. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And then he puts us in a church family and he, he makes us compassionate and loving and humble towards people like us who, we used to be blind and we live for the glory of God. Oh, praise God. Lord, there are people in this room who are still spiritually blind. I pray for that man, for that woman who's, who's blinded by their morality. Maybe they're even blinded by their religious upbringing. Or maybe they're blinded because they've given themselves over to sin. But they're blind, Lord. My hope is not in the freeness of their will because their will is enslaved. My hope is in the freeness of your grace. By your grace, would you break through and would you cause them to see Jesus who lived and died and rose again for all who would trust in him. Give them, Lord, I pray, the faith that you require of them. And then, Father, for the rest of us who are believing we need a refresher. We have gospel amnesia. We need to see clearly. There's mud on our windshield. Wipe it away so that we can see Jesus afresh and believe in him and worship him and make him known to a world around us. In Jesus' name, I pray that you would do these things in a thousand others that I'm not aware of that need to happen now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.